The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. You can find it printed on page 11 of your worship folder. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, help us to believe this moment that we are here because you have seen to it. You have something you want us to hear. You have something you want us to act on. Give us grace to believe that you know us in all of our complexity. And your response is always to move towards us in love to heal, to restore, to forgive, to make whole. Help us to be present now to your presence in that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever wish you had a second chance at something? Think about your life. I'll bet you that most of you could name it pretty quickly. Like, there's one big one maybe, right? And maybe a number of other small ones, a dream that was deferred or an opportunity that was lost or you want to say something just a little differently than you said it or you kind of wish you would have repaired a relationship and had a second crack at doing it. Or... And here's what I'm learning at the age of 56 with all 20-year-olds and out of the house as children. You, you do say, I wish I had a second chance at some of the parenting I did. That is, I'm not trying to say, oh boy, all you parents are listening to this, I'm not trying to tell you you're just going to have a big guilt trip. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, you're going to look back on it because, doggone it, we aren't ready to have them when we have them. You realize this. That's, that's the way it goes. When we're wise enough to raise kids, we're not having kids, right? But when we're not wise enough, we, we have them. And the 20-year-olds will give you something I call feedback on that experience. And our, listen, our, our policy at our house is like, bring it on. You know, bring it on. We were struggling. We were trying to figure out what to do. Tell us what it was like for you to say, I'm sorry. To, to, you know, great parenting with adult children is not detachment from them. I mean, I do love being an empty nester. Don't, don't, don't think I don't. 
But um, it is actually really healthy, solid, good conversation. So when I talk about second chances, I'm talking about a, a healthy regret. This is what David White calls a sincere regret. He says, sincere regret may in fact be a faculty for paying attention to the future, for sensing a new tide where we missed a previous one, for experiencing timelessness with a grandchild where we neglected a boy of our own. To regret fully is to appreciate how high the stakes are in even the average human life. Fully experienced, regret turns our eyes attentive and alert to a future possibly lived better than our past. Beautiful, huh? Now, I'm bringing up this whole idea to start here with of second chances because this is obviously a story of a, a pretty big second chance. And you may be wondering, Fred, exactly why are we talking about Good Friday now? How did this become what you chose to preach on today? Good question. Sorry to encroach on your Thanksgiving week with a Good Friday sermon. You know, when the first time I ever, I can remember, Trelly and I, were, my wife, his name is Trelly, we were talking the other day, and she's like, what's the first thing that came to mind when you, when you were a kid when you heard this story about the thief on the cross and, and all of that? I said, I thought that's the luckiest thief ever. This guy won the lottery. He's done something, I would say he was kind of a social criminal, an insurrectionist, and he's done something and he's got himself crucified, but it happens to be on the day where the Savior of the world is being crucified. How much better? I mean, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty lucky. Uh, and we're looking at it today because the Revised Common Lectionary, which we defer to whenever we don't have a series going on, uh, Christians all over the world today are actually looking at this particular passage because I think on this Sunday that's called the Reign of Christ Sunday, which marks the end of the calendar year for Christians, it gives us a marked contrast between different kinds, we might say, of monarchies or rules and reigns. The rule and reign of the world here is marked by agony by innocent people tortured, an innocent man tortured, beaten, beat down. There's anger, there's outrage, and it's in marked contradiction to contrast to the reign of Christ, which is marked by giving of self, forgiveness, forbearance, patience, empathy. And so I think the, the people who put together the Revised Common Lectionary, the wisdom of it is to look at this, is to ask what kind of world we're going to be talking about the reign of Christ. What kind of world do you want to live in? Marked by the values of the reign of this world, founded on violence and power? Or do you want to try to craft a world that's marked by the reign of Christ, founded on an axis of love and forgiveness? Big questions. And so let's ask this question today. What does this unique conversation of the crucified community have to teach us about the general thing we've had this fall, friendship with God? And I'm going to put a, put a piece of art here for us to have in the background throughout. This is a 1550 piece by the, what's called the last genius of the Italian Renaissance, Jacopo Tintoretto. He's Venetian, Italian. It's entitled, The Crucifixion. Now, he had a much more famous one in 1565, 15 years later. 
But the reason I chose this one today is I want us to picture throughout this sermon this conversation of the crucified community. What's, what's going on here? Because these crosses are pretty close together. They're even kind of facing one another a little bit. There's a conversation being had even as these people are having their last gasps of breath. And so what does this conversation? A couple things. First of all, there is, when we look at Christ on the cross with these two brigands on either side, there is a system that is exposed. A system that is exposed. In verses 32 and 33, if you'll look there, it says, when they came to the place that's called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. In 35 through 37, you hear some of the, the mocking that people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed. He saved others, let him save himself. You'll see that phrase, save yourself, or he saved himself three times uh, throughout this. Um, and then beyond that, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, the wine they were drinking around the cross, because I want to tell you something, in all mob violence, there's usually drugs and alcohol, something to somehow assuage the injustice that you're a part of. Mob violence often involves some way in which we alter our minds. They did that as they offered Jesus this sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then there was this mocking inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, what's going on here? The first thing I want to say is there's a system that's being exposed because why was Jesus on the cross? God did not put Jesus on the cross. Empire put Jesus on the cross. See, Jesus got himself put on that cross. Somebody says, well, Jesus was innocent. Yes, but Jesus violated some things that people didn't want violated intentionally. As one man says in this commentary about this, Jesus was intentional in his actions from day one, intentional about challenging corruption, intentional in the telling of his stories and parables, knowing full well they would antagonize the religious rulers and expose systems that were oppressive. He was intentional in healing, doing so on the Sabbath day in view of the Pharisees. He was intentional in overturning the tables at the temple, infuriating vendors, interrupting business as usual, and status quo of religious profit. Intentional in his message, free the oppressed, give to the poor, include instead of exclude, love instead of judge, knowing full well that that message of shalom was not going to be received well. It would lead him intentionally to the cross. So Jesus is on this cross, and Jesus is up there because he opposed the violence of empire, challenged injustice, and that's how you get a state-sponsored, religiously-endorsed lynching. So there is a system that's being exposed here. Jesus on a Christ is a damning invitement of the world as it has been arranged and tends to continue to be arranged. It calls into the question a world founded on violence and power Innocent people die, whether they're on crosses in the first century or in cages and camps today. And while Jesus is up there, he's asked, save yourself. Now think about this. It's not a bad thing to say in some ways. I mean, I know they're mocking and all, but there's a certain sense of like, we've heard about the miracles. There's a lot you have done. Show your power. Exercise it. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus didn't come to show how strong God was at playing our power games. Jesus did not come as a warrior to kill all the bad guys, but as someone who came to die on a cross. Nadia Bowles-Weber said this way, At the cross we see that Jesus came and showed us how strong God is by voluntarily losing at our game. He'd been trying to tell us the whole time by having a mom without status and there being no room in the inn for his birth and by gathering around him a motley crew of losers and then ticking them off by insisting on eating with the winners. He tried to teach us all of these maddening things, but we weren't listening, things that destabilize our systems of trying to get over on people by saying that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if you want to find your life, then lose it that the greatest among you will must become servants. If someone slaps you, offer them the other cheek as well. All of this losing can happen, and we will still be okay because the source of our worth, our dignity, is found in Genesis 1.26 where we learn that we are made in the very image of God, everyone. She goes on to say, I may feed my desire, and do I ever, all of us, I think, can connect to this. I may feed my desire to be right, to get over on others, to make people who have harmed me pay for what they've done, but it's an empty high, and then I crash. Hmm. You know, as you think about your own, if you're interested in doing that sort of thing, confession of sin... In light of the fact that we're looking at symptoms being ex- systems being exposed at the cross that oppress people, I wonder if your confessions of sin in your own life might go deeper than thinking about the individual things you've done wrong. Those are good too. Confess those, please. But to go deeper to ask hard questions about how you might be a part of systems that are perpetrating oppression and violence, in particular on people who are not, who don't look like me. People who are perhaps marginalized for one reason or another. To ask the hard question of how am I complicit? Because those systems, those are what get people like Jesus on a cross. Now, the second thing that this shows us is a beauty that's revealed in this story, in the crucified community. A beauty that's revealed in what is one of my favorite verses, and I hope you might think it's your favorite as well. And that verse is verse 34, one we don't have to look at. I can just say it. Where Jesus, hanged on a cross, forgives everybody. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I firmly believe that part of what Jesus is saying when he says they don't know what they're doing is that they're so caught up in a system of violence and power that they are caught up in something they don't even know how much they're being carried along by it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God and Jesus enters the world not as a crucifying punisher, 
but as a crucified victim. A God who would rather die than kill his enemies. The cross is not what God inflicts onto Christ in order to forgive us. The cross is what God in Christ endures as God is forgiving us. Showing in the midst of this horror, in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of this torture, the divine beauty of love and forgiveness. The beauty that Dostoevsky said would save the world. Save the world. And on the cross, we have the love of God from the cross, offering humanity a way out of the vicious cycle of practicing endless, or or excuse me, uh, producing endless victims. This is not only, this is an opportunity for us to practice the beautiful gospel in the midst of a world that's hell-bent on only being governed by coercion, power, and violence. I wonder, do you feel yourself a little bit caught up in a system? I wonder if you could hear Jesus say to you today, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'll tell you as a pastor, when people come to my office and they tell me the things they've done, and a lot of times these words come out of their mouth. I I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I just, I'm just not, all this brokenness now because of the choices I've made, I I feel, I I just, I I didn't know what I was doing. So can you hear today Jesus saying to you, Father, forgive Thomas, forgive Anne, forgive Kim, forgive Fred, forgive Melody, forgive me. They didn't know what they were doing. Put it another way, if you hear one thing today, if Jesus on the cross can forgive the people that are crucifying him, I believe he can see his way through to forgive you. What would it mean for you to access that today? Well, Guess which person on the cross tells us how? Because there's a salvation received in this story as well. You know, much is made about these two different criminals, right? You know, if you read a lot of things, it'll be like, here's the really clueless one, and here's the really godly one, right? You know, here's the one that's, don't follow this example and do follow this example. But I just want to tell you, I have read for a week on this, and these are desperate people up there. They've got this character in the middle that they're not sure what to do with, Jesus. And they're both giving desperate pleas. So I'd like to make the case that the first criminal is up on a cross, hello, and says to Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Well, do something. Save us. Save yourself. Do you think you wouldn't say something like that? 
And then the other person says, you know, remember me. Well, who's to say that the other criminal didn't say, wait a second, so that's what I should say? All right, remember me too. Paradise, I'm down. Please remember me. Those are apparently the magic words. We do turn Christianity into saying the magic words. But Jesus has forgiven everybody in this scene, friends. But remember me is actually still a really interesting thing to say. How simple could it be? How much is it at the very heart of every single person in this room to want to be known, to want to be remembered, and to say to Jesus, remember me might be the way for you to not just know about forgiveness, but to experience it, to be transformed by it. Maybe that's what you should say every day. Maybe you're right now thinking, I don't know what I believe about Christianity, but I could say to Jesus, remember me. Remember me. So here's this king, this monarch, ruling from a cross with words of forgiveness. See how eager Jesus is to forgive. How aggressive Jesus is to extend life and community. To say, be with me. Here's Jesus standing in solidarity. As Alan Callahan says in the talking about African Americans in the Bible, he says, Jesus' generous promise to the thief on the cross is a poignant moment in the history of justice. With his last breath, Jesus affirms his solidarity with the crucified criminal. And Jesus stands in solidarity with you, and all of your crucifixions, and all of your suffering, and all of your pain, and all of your stumbling and bumbling, and all of your getting it right and not getting it right, Jesus stands with you as well. Because Jesus on that cross knows that you can destroy his body, but not his soul. James Cohn, in his interview with Bill Moyers, Bill Moyers even though you've lived under the shadows, this is one of the most famous African-American theologians to ever live, died last year. Even though you're living under the shadow of the lynching tree, religion is a spirit that is not defined by what people can do to your body. They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. We were always told that. There's a spirit deep in you that nobody can take away from you because it's a creation that God gave to you. Now, if you know you have, have a humanity that nobody can take away from you, they may lock you up, they may lynch you, but they don't win. I meant to tell you that's printed in your worship folder. You can go back and look at it later. And so, in light of this, what are some of the implications for those who are interested in trying to follow Jesus? Because here's a story of this tragedy, Right? This, this injustice, and in the midst of it, there's this beauty and there's this light. You know, the, the old Leonard Cohen phrase, um, uh, there's, a, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Maybe part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to look for those cracks 
and bring the light of Christ. Look for those cracks in all the different systems of oppression and seek to bring the light of Christ. That's where it gets in. A crack in the glass ceiling. A crack in systems that oppress others. A crack in the phobias that seek to deny people their civil rights. A crack. Look for a crack and shed the light of Christ in it. Expose injustice where you may. Shed light on those ignored, overlooked, and silence. Because your light, the light of Christ, I believe, and I really believe this is what the Revised Common Lectionary Committee would want to have to be said after this verse has been looked at. Your light brings with this king, this monarch, hope. 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 Hope in the midst of tragedy. That's what's going on in this thing right here. In the midst of this massive injustice, the light of Christ has injected of all things hope. And that's our responsibility to do the same. This is the reign of Christ. Second chances, third chances, fourth chances, as many chances as you need abound for all. And this is good news. Gracious God, help us today to be the light of Christ in this world. Help us today to forgive as Jesus has radically forgiven Help us this day to hear the words spoken over this crowd of people is the same word spoken over this crowd of people. Words of forgiveness, words of empathy, words of solidarity with humanity, words of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.